Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Sinclair and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more. Plank the second to help you write better. And plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, I get authors on the show and I talk to them about their work and ask them how they've learned to do better in their writing and what we can learn from that ourselves. Sometimes I look at the work of um, listeners, their first pages, and I give some feedback on how they might make it even better and sometimes I just talk into the microphone about whatever's on my mind. Today it's a kind of none of those things so I don't know why I said those things in the intro but I suppose to give you an idea of what you could be listening to but you aren't now. Um, for today's episode which might well be the last of the year I thought I'd do a quick Q&A session, uh, an engagement with the community the way I've said that makes it seem like an onerous duty rather than something I really wanted to do. But I just asked the, um, we have a Discord on this uh, podcast, a Discord community uh, that I set up this year, something I've been sort of uh, half thinking about for a while. I held back partly because I don't really use Discord very much and partly because I just didn't really think there'd be much interest in it. Um, and... It turned out lots of you were interested and now we have a community of people who are interested in reading and writing, who talk a little bit about the podcast, but also about their own work, about books they've been reading, uh, share extracts from works in progress and give each other feedback. And there's even a forum there for longer swaps of critiques for people who are working on novels who want to share longer extracts and maybe want to ask who's interested give a little bit of feedback about what the book's about maybe offer sort of mutual offers of feedback so I'll look at your longer section and you look at mine uh, and it's just a it's a really nice community there's a link in the uh, show notes and the description of today's episode if you'd like to join yourself or you can just google death of a thousand cuts discord if you don't know I feel sort of I don't want to leave anyone out who's like, what's Discord? There's so many. We're in the kind of like great Twitter diaspora at the moment as people are kind of spreading out like so much buckshot across Mastodon and Hive and Substack and Instagram and all these things that aren't quite the same. And lots of us weren't even on Twitter to begin with and then this Facebook which nobody is talking about going to even though it's right there uh and, and Discord if you don't know is just an app that you can download that is mostly been used really for people who are playing like video games who want a sound channel to chat on but it does like video chat and everything uh you know we could use the forum for sound uh, for voice chat at some stage I've been sort of half toying with the idea of doing some kind of workshop or even just you know setting up a, an hour's writing session at one stage where we check in at the beginning over voice and then write for an hour and then check in at the end and I could just lead it a bit in as much as anything like that needs leading um might do that at some stage but for now anyway i won't sort of dilly dally any further um i asked on the other community uh if they had any questions about writing or anything tangentially relevant to the podcast and some people came back with some questions so i'm just going to read those questions out and give you my thoughts on them um i've not 
prepared my answers. These are just my thoughts off the top of my head as a professional writer, but just I, I feel it necessary to say these are just my informed but necessarily subjective opinions and other opinions are available, which is why I love getting authors on the show, actually. It's, I really enjoy having guests on because, you know, quite a few of them disagree with me uh, in either sort of small nuanced ways or in fairly sort of major ideological ways about writing. And I think that's important. And I wouldn't ever want anyone to listen to the show and hear what I say and feel like the kind of writing and storytelling they care care about. Unless it was actively destructive. Obviously, there we can Im- invent a scenario where I put off someone who was planning to write stories that spread despair and misery amongst the vulnerable, uh, driving them to crawl into bed and, and never emerge. I, I, you know, I would like people who feel that way to maybe rethink their charted life path. But aside from that, you know, it's important to me that people who don't feel moved. I, I, it, I'm just super conscious of not wanting to mould you into being the kind of writer that I want think I want to read. Because even what we think we want isn't always what we actually in practice want. Originality is the bringing into being of something that doesn't already exist. And surprise and enjoyment and learning from a book to a certain extent necessitates encountering something that you didn't know you needed. So I have failed in everything I do on this podcast if people go away from it trying to write a book that is purely what Tim Clare would approve of. And I don't think you're that sort of slavishly in hock to my good or bad opinion but I'm aware that I just want you to feel empowered by my advice not caged in paranoid and vaguely hunted feeling gosh am I doing this wrong have I stuck to all the laws that Tim has laid down am I disappointing him and I say that partly because these are things I feel myself about people who I admire and respect who often people who've shown me kindness you know things like uh, my agent and the people who've edited my work and friends and peers they're often the people I worry about not liking something when I'm working on it and it's not because they're these horrible judgmental characters who are continually trying to extinguish my creative spark it's just that I like them and I care about them and to a certain extent they're the only people whose good opinion matters to me who I can also imagine having a who I can kind of vaguely simulate them having a good or bad reaction obviously there's general readers but but because they just represent people they're kind of inchoate so they don't they don't they're not represented in my brain in some deeply 
tangible way, you know, like a person you know is. And so necessarily people I like and respect who, you know, are generally very supportive are the people I imagine when I'm worrying whether my work's good or on the right path or whether I'm going to disappoint them or whether they're going to, you know, very politely say, this doesn't make sense, Tim, what are you doing? Whether they're going to look politely confused at what I've decided to do. And I don't want to pay I don't want to play that role, however slight, in your head. I purely if you imagine me reacting to your work at all, I want it to be with a kind of thumbs up and a you can do it. Not that I advocate for mindless boosterism either. I, I think you can do it and part of my belief in you is the belief that you can take on, recognise and act upon feedback and criticism to make your work better. I don't think there's any... Th- I, I just don't think there's any distance, any meaningful distance between you and anyone who's published at the moment, aside from, you know, things like contacts. But I, I think even those can be overcome. That the, the, the nepotism of elements of the industry, I think, is not un- insurmountable. But a lot of it is just giving you the tools to work on your work and make it what it needs to be. But and make changes in sentences, make changes in structures. But I don't think anything is so broken that it can't be mended. And I don't think any of the... I am I know that your ideas are of the calibre that they need to be to be published. I th- I'm sure you've had fantastic ideas for stories, characters, uh, your sense of human emotion and conflict are all there. It's just that books are a hell of a lot of work if you want them to be good and I think a lot of us initially underestimate the amount of craft you can pour into a sentence the volume of effort that a scene can hold the level of work that you can do on it to make it good enough and I don't want to drive you towards perfectionism either there's different ways to do that and there's ways that you can set that up in a kind of algorithm in your mind so you're doing it as you write and there are ways you can practice to develop your clarity of speech and there's a few principles you can set up so you're already filtering some of the things but another thing I'd say is I don't think anything that I write is better than yours uh, especially on a first draft it's just not <laughs> I, I you know I have to read what comes out of my fingertips and it's not better than anything I review on this podcast. It's not better than anything I see from writers. It's just not. I've I've been writing creative writing all my life. I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was five. That was over 35 years ago now. And I, I've never had the imagination or gumption to think of something better to do than tell stories and make things happen with words to make words work harder than they usually do that's what I've given my life to for better or worse and I think that's what love is really is is it it matters you know what you care you being here and you wanting to write matters not in some if you fail (laughs) you you're a failure way but just 
you know, we're here at the center of the universe. We're blessed with these thinking brains. And here we are trying to make sense of what it is to be a human and give entertainment and emotional experiences and empathy and joy and escape to our fellow human beings. And it's fine to think about that and come to the conclusion that ultimately it's not important. I don't think what we're doing is more important than teaching, than being a a parent. I don't think it's more exalted, but it is important. And our job as human beings is to do the job we're here to do, if that makes sense. You know, we don't have to, I don't have to go out and be a heart surgeon because that's not where my passion and my interest and my focus lies. So if I am going to write, it's important that I honour that. And if I do feel drawn to make stories and talk about being a human and, and, and trying to give others these experiences, some of which are impossible experiences, right? Sometimes when we write fantasy or, I don't know, spy thrillers or all these stories, we're writing about things that humans cannot experience in their lives because they don't exist or they don't yet exist in some cases. Or they did exist long ago, but they're no longer available to us. They're no longer accessible. And we're trying to give those experiences to other human beings. And we're trying to connect our brains up, wire our brain, daisy chain our brains together. And make each of us feel a little less alone and remind ourselves that we're all a family. That's, you know, these... I'm. I'm wanking on a bit, but I do believe all this. I, I feel like I want to come in and apologise for it or make a, a goofy joke for fear someone will say uh, Tim was being schmaltzy or twee or meaninglessly broad. But all of this is stuff I sincerely believe. And I think if you find yourself here listening to me and you care about stories, then you have a kind of responsibility to, all right, well, let's do it. Let's do it right then. Instead of like digging our toe in the carpet and tugging our forelock and going, oh, God, oh, geez, oh, gosh, you know, I don't know if I don't know if I deserve it. Uh, uh, like this constant crawling apology. Let's just go, OK, well, flip it. I'm here now. If I'm going to write, I'm going to do it right. What you shouldn't ever doubt is that by uh, that you ha lack the capacity to apply yourself and do that successfully you just don't lack that you just don't it's there are steps they can be learned but create the biggest lie that is perpetuated by people who have a massive investment in perpetuating it is that creative writing cannot be taught can creative writing be taught of course it fucking can don't be so stupid the own the people who spread that are the same people who have made the entire publishing industry be corralled as this cozy little upper middle class workplace where there simply aren't the salaries to support you unless you've got something else supporting you in your life. And the same for people who come into being authors. So many of the authors' salaries have just had the latest reports on earnings for authors. 
you know, you have to have a second job or you have to have a partner who can salary. You have to be in a position of comfort to be able to contemplate doing that. So, of course, those people are going to talk about writing as if it is a an ancestral bloodline, as if it's a form of aristocracy where talent is by means that, are, that no one is prepared to detail is somehow handed down. It's not. Don't believe them. They're talking out their asses. They don't know what they're talking about. They never support it with evidence because they can't, because it doesn't exist. Whereas I've been taught creative writing by my teachers of English, by the teachers who showed me stories and said, this is what do you think is going on and, and encouraged me and, and, and pulled out of me analysis. And I'm not just talking about university or when I did my master's. I'm talking about when I was in year seven and we were I you know and we were we were coaxed through loving stories when I you know when my dad read to me when my mum read to me at bedtime when people sat down with me in classes and we talked about year five when I was like nine ten so this would be like the year that Margaret Thatcher resigned. We used to do every week in class, we used to do an exercise with flashcards where my teacher, Mr. Millard, would read out the first two parts of a story from these big, like, laminated flashcard thingies. I guess they weren't flashcards, they were just big cards, right? He'd read the first two parts out, then we'd be invited to complete the story with the and do the last part and then you know and then and then there'd be then often we'd get the third part of the story read out to us as, as if to say and here's what you should here's the real ending which was, it was a weird flex but didn't spoil it but, but we were taught about that's that was we did creative writing lessons what do you mean can creative writing be taught don't be such a fucking prat <laughs> I, t- I I stopped myself from swearing earlier by saying flip, and that seemed like very restrained to me. But I've I've left that behind now. Anyway, none of no one in the Q and A asked, "Can creative writing be taught?" Because they probably realised how exercised I'd I had become, how eggy I'd be, as we used to say. Um. So here's the first question. I'll just hammer through these and and give my my immediate thoughts and i hope that they're useful they're sincere they're informed but they are subjective so make of them what you will so first off topper says if i get 10 chapters or five chapters or three chapters into a draft and all i can think about is the stuff that i retroactively don't like and know how i would change in the next draft or during revisions should i keep going forwards or should i start from scratch and do it the right and stroke or better way or some third thing. Thanks. So, Topper, I think it's important when I speak on creative writing that when I have a strong opinion on something, I'm I'm very direct and forthright to the point of sounding maybe a tiny bit arrogant. Uh, so I can be clear, so I can give just to honour people's time and, and deliver an answer with clarity. Uh, so it's, so I'm not hedging too much and, and being 
to, on the other hand, about it. If I have a strong opinion and then I trust you to make your own adjustments. But I do also think it's important I flag where I am not entirely settled on a subject or where I still find ambiguities or where I struggle because I think there's a temptation as a writer and especially if one is involved as I am in creative writing pedagogy and as such handing down truths and principles and compositional frameworks about making stories or poems or making words dance or whatever you want to call what we do there's a, there's a temptation to um overstate the case or say what i think is what i would like to do what i wish i do and and kind of secretly be giving advice to myself this is the area by far that i struggle with more than any other and i see writers i see authors talk about when you do the first draft just hammer through it don't worry about quality keep going so i, I and i will i will return to that thought in just a sec but just to say i, I just want to start by saying by acknowledging your the pain that may be hiding behind this or at least the frustration and the confusion i don't think the fact that you've identified this as a problem shows that you're really on the ball and you have a great sense of analysing and identifying stress points in your own practice. And I think that bodes very well for you. And I just want to express my sort of deep solidarity with what you're going through. You are definitely not alone. I've been through it a lot. It is in no way a reflection of your fitness or lack thereof to be a writer. Far from it. In fact, the fact, as I say, that you've identified this and that you're aware of it shows an analytical mindset and a capacity for meta thought that um, bodes very well. So just to refer to what I was saying, it, it, make, it, it absolutely tortures me when I see authors say oh just hammer through your first draft don't worry about it being good or bad just get to the end you can make it better later you can fix it in post as they say in film because the problem is as, as you will have felt well one you start feeling these kind of these kind of fish hooks sort of digging snag snagging your skin and tugging at you dr this drag of regret and doubt and should I've made that different what should that scene have been? Did I make a mistake there? And often it's only when you get to later scenes and things start to feel intuitively wrong, when things start to feel bogged down, that you start going, ah, am I, did I mess up? Would this be cooler if I had done this differently? And it's almost like the characters themselves start to resist being pushed in these directions that they don't like, that feel unnatural or... Some of the slack goes, some of the tension goes out of the story. There's some slack appears in it. You you start writing scenes that feel a little bit like the characters are hanging around on a fag break while God is stacking chairs. There's this odd feeling of being in the wrong timeline. 
this weird gray ghostly it's almost like a it's almost like the absence that comes with grief if that's not too extraordinary a comparison to make if that isn't a little far-fetched this idea that there's an absence that the story can't quite put its finger on but you are aware of and you're trying to stumble forward but life in this case the fictive reality feels somewhat false however that feeling is not a 100% reliable one can go a little bit nose blind I talked about this on Twitter this week uh, just with being with one story for a while and start wanting to revise it with the ice house oh my god I rewrote it so many the opening so many times oh lord Oh, my heart breaks thinking about how many times I rewrote it. So many different versions, so many different possibilities, so many different realities. This kaleidoscope of different runs at it. And then I ended up going back to how I originally opened it. Uh, when I started writing it, I was writing at a rate of about 14,000 words a week. And it was just... And, and, and most of that stuff that I wrote then ended up going into the book. But then I doubted and I went back and I rewrote and I and I fiddled and I tweaked and I agonised and oh! And... I don't know what I could have done differently. I don't know that I could have 100% avoided that. But one can't take those feelings of doubt, of guilt, of... And I'd often end up rewriting something and thinking I'd solved a problem and then going back to the original draft and realising, no, I've just repeated what I already wrote. I've almost verbatim in some cases. So, all I've really done there is restated... The dilemma, the the twisting of that particular pretzel in a more visceral and slightly coloured in way, which I realise doesn't help you, except perhaps in the way that human sympathy and solidarity and a feeling of like, I feel this can. However, I do have some suggestions some ways that you can take this particular tension, this struggle, this the hard potato of your doubt and and simmer it for a while and maybe start to break down some of the starches in it and and soften it somewhat. And one of the suggestions I would give you is simply to skip ahead to some key scenes later in the book and write them as you currently see them existing. Write, like depending on the genre you're writing in, you know, maybe you write a key confrontation with the antagonist, you know, the climactic scene. 
maybe you write a big literary set piece with the characters walking through a cathedral or at the top of St. Michael's Mount or wherever that scene is taking place and you write the scene with your lavish description of clouds in the sky and and in the ocean or whatever that scene looks like. Uh, You you move to an emotional high point, a crescendo of the story and you have a go at writing that. I think doing that often can give you some clarity on early scenes. Sometimes there are scenes that you will find you are agonising over, that you're writing this way, then that way, and uh, and uh, that it turns out you can't write well anyway because they, they would better, they're better off being cut entirely. That the, the story just doesn't need that particular tentpole that it will work better without it. So sometimes that's an answer. That, 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 and, and one can only really get that clarity by maybe moving forward and trying a later bit of the story and, and, and testing that and seeing what happens. Maybe you need to remind, ask yourself what, you know, go back to like, what do I want this story? What is this story about? Although I would say like going to the climactic scenes often gives you clarity over theme as well. But like what what tonally is this story about? What, what, what thematically is this story about? Whose story is it? And, and maybe that can give you a little bit of space. Maybe you just drop into writing a sort of B-plot with another point of view character and, and work on that for a while. It may just be that you need some space from that. But I, I think skipping ahead, if I want to give you something that can give you a little bit of practical advice. Sometimes, when I was writing the honours, sometimes I would think of a change. I resist it. Go through a semi-little grieving process and then make a decision. Right, well, shall I just continue rather than looping back and fixing it? I'm putting fix in heavy inverted commas there because often, well, not often, but often enough, one finds that it's not a fix at all. It's simply a a fiddle, a tweak. It's You're simply move, moving things from one place to another for the sake of it. The, what You know, I would continue writing. I'd make some notes to myself and then I'd continue writing as if I'd gone back and make those change, made those changes. So you can continue that forward momentum. What I would emphasise, however, is that there are no, there is no, there is no perfect hack for this. The number of authors I've talked about this on the show before, and I've said the phrase I've talked about this on the show before many times, but the number of authors writing a second novel who told me faithfully I made a lot of false starts with my first book you know I, I did a lot of you know did a lot of research and I tried one way and then I make this big change and, and I'm not going to do that this time what I'm going to do with this one is I'm going to plan it all out 
and then I'll sit down and write it because I want to avoid that. Who then went on to have the most tortuous, painful experience writing their second novel. I think partly because they decided they weren't going to give themselves the grace of what turns out to be part of the writing process, which is false starts, which is writing things one way, sucking it and seeing, and then going, oh, I don't like this. You know, slapping the paint on the wall, looking around and going, actually, I don't, this colour looks ghastly. I'm going to change it. You can't always know whether it's whether you're just having an ugly day, right? Whether you're just having that day where you itch and nothing fits and you feel bloated and you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't like the how you look and whether you're just having a little fit of self-loathing. I don't like a lot of my writing when I'm writing it. I don't understand it. I Whenever I try to explain it to other people, the best I get is them nodding politely, but I feel like the words don't come out right and I can't translate the ideas in my head. I, I, I just, I feel myself losing the room as I talk about it. And I hate it and I start to doubt myself. And I write it down and I, and, and then, and and then I get to the stage like I I hear back and it'll be like yeah we'd like the book we'd like to the your publisher's going to make an offer for it and I just think well they can't really like it they must like the as if as a business practice they're like well we don't really we think this is shite but just so Tim Clare isn't disappointed like as if the UK publishing industry operates as a kind of benevolent fund for this this sort of emotionally vulnerable autistic man <laughs> it doesn't like they might be wrong but i don't think they're doing it out of anything apart from they think they like the book right they're being sincere now when my books are published i often by that stage where i've had a lot of support and help from professionals I like the books then, don't get me wrong. Once my, once my books are published, I often really, really like them, really super happy with them, very confident about them. So I'm not, it, this isn't entirely self-loathing and it's not, I, I'm not, but there, there's, there's an element of just my opinion of my work being so vulnerable and enmeshed, vulnerable to and enmeshed with my mood you can't plan your way out of this, I don't think. And the writers who say they can, who write a plan and do it, tend to be... I think I think the writers who are generally weaker on the line, and I think we're often weak structurally as well. Often you read the books and there'll be glaring weaknesses in character motivation where you can feel that something a character does doesn't really make sense where there are bits that feel false or weak or two-dimensional and that's where they've stuck to the plan as they laid it out despite their heart the bit of them that feels most alive tugging them in a different direction but don't be ashamed of that fire of that spark of that feeling of like no no that driving you to make your story better that question, can this be made better, is the soul 
of art. Your goal as a writer, the core goal of all art is to speak the truth without stating the obvious. And that is an incredibly tall order. And, and you are looking to say one true thing, to say one line that sings with simplicity or interest, to, to say something that the reader has not heard before, to put some words together that have not existed together beforehand. And you're not going to do that on a first draft. Uh, un, un, unless you're a mutant, in which case you have no sympathy from me at all. But if you're struggling with it, and if sometimes you write your first draft and they're a bit shit, um, you're in my gang and a thousand hearts to you, you will always be my friend because you're just like me in that case. So what I would say, Topper, just practically, just to wrap this up, is, is, is try to skip ahead to a key scene that feels don't, you don't have to write your books in a linear fashion. Skip ahead to a key scene that feels most colourful, most vivid, most full of clarity in your mind and write that. And give some of that stuff you've been working on a little break so then you can come back to it. And then you might go back and sort of fill in some key scenes, some set pieces. And then you can look at your what we call bridging passages between the set pieces. And this is an arbitrary split between the idea that there's set pieces and bridging passages. And it's not more of a spectrum of importance. But I think that would be the way I would approach this. Because that's going to help reorient you towards... what your prose sounds like when it's cooking, when it's alive, when you're firing on all cylinders, when your story is a living, breathing thing. Uh, hope you got something out of that. Um, Cody Lloyd says, I finished a draft of a novel and have gone over it a couple of times, editing, stroke, cleaning, etc. What comes next? They would say, if you've gone over it a couple of times, editing and cleaning... Right, editing and cleaning are completely different things. Um, I, I it depends what depth you mean. What 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 editing and cleaning sounds worryingly like, and forgive me if I'm reading too much into this, but it feels worrying like a kind of surface polish. And I suspect the issues with most of our work after a first draft are deeper than that and more substantial. If you've simply gone doing a line edit and you've done that a couple of times, it no. What comes next is, I guess, a simple answer is you find someone or a group who will read it or read sections of it and you brace to be massively disappointed because they are going to find huge problems with it. They're going to find colossal problems with it. And then your decision has to be, do I start again or do I think there's enough in here? And, and, and do I think these people are right? And do I think they're, the, the problems that they're finding in it and the questions they're asking are in, 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 in sync enough of what I care about? You know, they're not just going, well, why is there a... Why are there aliens in it? Isn't that a bit silly? Couldn't you make this sort of more realistic? If you feel they're coming from a place of getting what you're going for, then you have to make a decision. Am I going to roll my sleeves up 
and actually do the realizing that you are in all likelihood only a third finished do you then go right knowing everything you've worked on uh, so far the amount of effort you put into it are you willing then to go right and 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 the and the real work sort of beginning or do you go i this was a learning experience and i'm going to work on something else now both of those are valid i realize i've loaded that in a way that makes the first one sound more valorous there's a certain appeal to the protestant work ethic you know if you are a real artist and you can take criticism then you will step up and you will make your work better but if not you can throw it away and and turn your back and refuse the call to adventure i'm not actually saying that if i've weighted the choices slightly it is because i see people who fall at the feedback stage who hear feedback go i guess it's not good enough and they work on something else and it's actually it's fine to just spend one's writing life kind of dinkering about with stories because you enjoy imagining worlds and telling the stories and you're not too fussed about structure you're not too fussed about style and it makes you happy if you do that you are ahead of 80% of writers, including professionals, some of whom find writing the most painful, doubt-ridden thing. If you're writing and you're enjoying it and you're doing that and you have no particular desire to tailor your cloth to the specifications of the rest of humanity, many of whom, frankly are tasteless dickheads that's totally fine and i i'm not i'm not i'm not doing a kind of like red pill blue pill trick question here to test your it's fine and it was also fine to go well then this story now i see isn't good enough i've had that experience i when i when i was doing recording the tv series for channel four and i met terry pratchett and showed him the fantasy story i was working on told him about it at least and i'm not doing that just to name drop because it was a really key moment for me he really engaged with what i was talking about and instead of just saying a few kind of things about his own work for the cameras he started asking me questions which i wasn't ready for and really engaging with the reality of the world and going well if this is true what about this well okay so would it follow then and 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 really taking me seriously as a writer, which in retrospect was like one of the most uh, wonderfully unpatronising things he could have done. And I really appreciate I appreciate it more with every year. But I didn't necessarily. I was. I mean, I was grateful. I thought it was very nice. But the problem was, in those moments, I realised my story was not going to ever be publishable. Because the level he was dealing with fantasy was light years ahead of what I had thought. And frankly, he was asking questions. That I was just going, well, I don't really, I don't know. I don't really care. I never really thought about that. Is it important? That's what I was thinking. And it, it is kind of, and it was cool. They were all great engines for story. And 
I had engaged with my story on such a surface level and it was the right thing to chuck it away and start again. So my suspicion is you could, you know, take it to some people and ask for feedback, but don't ask for feedback if you don't want feedback. And God, you just, sometimes we need some tough love and I know people use tough love as a synonym for, you know, really bad parenting and like whacking children and stuff. I don't mean tough love is like calling you shit and saying you shouldn't write. But the stuff that gets us where we need to be if we want to, you know, it's like what comes next? It's up to you. What do you care about? Do you want to be a do you want to be a professional writer? Do you want to create stories for, you know, your own entertainment? are you interested in improving improving your craft what like that that's going to dictate it but my deep suspicion i am reading into this and i could be completely wrong so apologies if i am is that you are no you are nowhere like that that that, that edit editing stroke cleaning is just oh, that's just set, that's a little sort of it's not even a red flag it sounds too judgmental i don't mean that but I'm, I'd just be like, no, just <laughs> it's it's just like it, yeah. Gosh, I, I I think, but there could be a frigging amazing story in there. But my suspicion is you got a long way to go. But then the editing and the restructuring is the most exciting part because that's when you actually see it come together and you go, oh shit, this is good. And that is an amazing feeling when you go, shit, this is actually pretty... I did this. This is going to be... Like, you make the changes. People complain about your work and you go, oh, fuck, fuck. And then you make the edits that they suggest. You make the changes. And then what's left? You go, this is good. And then you go, oh, and it's mine. When people read this, they're not going to know that someone complained about it in a... That a reader came back and had some problems with it and I made changes. They're just going to see this and me and go, oh, no, I wrote this. Oh, I get to take all the credit. The person who complained about it doesn't. I do. They just had to read a bad story. I get the prestige and the money. You know, that's how, that's how you can soften the blow of any critical feedback. It's just like, well, the rest of the world is going to see a much better version of me and think I did it first time because people don't really understand how much work goes into my stories. Uh, so um, Xerxes says, um, I, I feel... I'm drawn to short stories and think I'm better suited for them in a way, writing-wise. But I also feel it's easier, easier in scare quotes, to be published with novels. Should I do what I'm drawn to or should I do the thing that might get me more com commercial success? Novels will not get you commercial success in all likelihood. Um, the percentage of novels that are a, what you would consider a commercial success is, uh, is not high. So I think going into novel writing with this idea that you're going to it won't make you a commercial success it might i know people have made loads of money from writing so don't get me wrong it's not that it's impossible i've got i've got friends i've got close friends who you know done very well out of writing but i mean do you feel like you can do a forced march through how are you going to feel on book eight book nine if you don't read i mean you might as well just go into a safely pensionable job if you're going to do something you don't like, I feel like you've answered your own question, right? 
Like, what, like, why do you want me to give you permission to write short stories? I mean, the own. It's difficult. I think with science fiction, uh, there's a certain degree to which short stories have a limited commercial value beyond being published in the magazines or anthologies because some of them occasionally get licensed for movies. Ted Chiang is clearly the big example of someone who's done very, very, very well as a short story writer. And his short stories are, I don't really understand why they're good, but I really like them, even though his writing style is very flat. Um, they're very weird. And, and I think they're good. I wish I had a sort of spicier take on Ted Chiang than to say I really like his stories. <laughs> like most people who read them. Whoa! Great analysis. I feel like we only get one shot at being alive. And it would be a shame to get to the end of it and realise that we just did some stuff, I don't know, for capitalism. Like, you know, of course there are considerations on how you're going to support and feed yourself. And there are organisations you can apply to for funding. There are ways you can look to arts organisations and prizes and things like that. And writer, writer in residence, you could look at writer residencies and even teaching creative writing when you get to a certain stage to make a career where you're not getting your whole income out of story sales, viable. You know, lots of people do do that, actually. But I just do not think... I mean, I wouldn't give up on novels either. If you read a lot of novels, maybe you just want to accept that you need the right idea for one. And at the moment, you can cut your teeth writing short stories. But I think you should go after what you love. The other thing is, I think if you go after what you love, like wholeheartedly, at some point you may sort of be sated on that. And you may find your thoughts wandering towards an, a longer piece you may find yourself yearning for that grander canvas but you'll do that because you're allowed to choose it if you if you forbid yourself from writing short stories they're going to have that tantalizing feel of something that's kind of closed off from you and they'll always they might have a, a, an allure that they wouldn't otherwise so throw yourself into them there's no there's no better way to acquaint yourself with the actual reality of how much you like something than, than to give yourself as much of it as you want so I hope that helps but I mean in, in terms of like yes the novels are are more commercially viable but that is very relative <laughs> neither are a great avenue if you want to get rich but I would always just push people to do what they love Uh, as long as you're doing it for the joy of creation, I, I just think the other stuff is not a great. It's not. A great, it's not. This isn't a great industry for for for, for money. It, you know, there's a kind of lottery system that occasionally chucks bales of cash at someone apparently at random, but that will drive you mad if you chase that too much. So a Bobby A says, does the fact that a possible team of people, agents, editors, marketing, etc., contribute to a novel diminish the author's ownership or intent in writing it? Yes. Yes, it does. Absolutely. It does diminish the author's ownership 
and intent in writing it. It makes it a team effort. Does something being a team effort diminish it as art? No. It's a cooperative effort. Unless you are literally an indie published author and even then you will have read loads of writers and you probably have friends who read over your stuff or give you feedback but clearly the burden of effort but the the idea of the lone author is a, is a myth it's bollocks and for a lot of celebrity authors you know they're ghost written so they maybe came up with an idea and then someone wrote the book for them and their name is almost purely a marketing gimmick but even for me my books that I that people read, if you've read one of my books, it was a team effort. And I, that's not me being like, oh, darling, it was a team effort as, you know, camera flashes and bouquets of flowers are tossed at me. It was like every... I mean, even someone like... E- even the proofreader, even the copy editor stage, right? The copy, copy editing stage improves my prose so much all praise the unsung copy editors who go through line by line making my sentences clearer making them sing more making them leaner um, correcting factual errors oh every time and it's so lush getting the copy edit back because you go through and there'll be these red things for you just to approve well i've deleted something or moved a word around and it inevitably makes a sentence but occasionally there's one or two i go no i don't agree with that i said that in a weird way because i like the cadence of it i i don't care about grammatical correctness in this you know we're allowed to we don't have to say everything in received pronunciation or received english but like it's standard English. However, for the most part, I just approve, delete these fluff words, this grammatical cartilage that doesn't make the story any better, that just bogs it down. And my work gets better and better. Real no effort for me. I just watch it. it it's just like seeing the pounds fall off and this muscle just pack onto the story. And you're left with this lean, ripped, incredible prose and that's just the copy editing stage right and then i got i've got all this feedback from my agent including just like what i want to write about that discussion there and then uh, discussions with my editors who you know what sometimes suggest we maybe we need a whole scene here there are scenes in all my books and sections and even sometimes chapters that exist in the fiction and in the non-fiction that only exist because an editor said do you i think we need something here and <laughs> honestly sometimes it's just been like i feel we need something here to move the action or to show us that this person is feeling this or to give us an idea or can you answer this question for me and and really they're no more specific than that but that is a a really elementary part of the writing process that they're stepping in and I say helping with but essentially doing right so yeah it diminishes my ownership it's a jointly owned enterprise because I don't write it on my own. And I don't... Do I feel diminished by that? No. No, not at all. I, I, I don't... <laughs> it's, I'm really happy with that. It's a joy. My, I've, You know, I've had my editor on... My, my editor, um, Joe, who edited my last three books, has been on the podcast to talk about editing. Um, 
And yeah, she, Joe Dingley, my editor, was just amazing. Really, really good. Really amazing feedback. Really, it, you know, it's part of, you know, co-authored the books, really. I don't feel diminished by that. I'm, it's, it's writing a very lonely business. It's nice to be part of a team. So yeah, it, it, it means it's not the brain fruit of a single exalted genius. But does that matter? Do I care as a reader? <laughs> no, of course I fucking don't. Kavek said, um, when do you know that you should stop working on a book? Well, you don't. I mean, you just have to get... I mean, it depends what your goal with the book is, really. But I think you just have to push it to a point of exhaustion, really, where you go, I can't take this anymore on my own without handing it over to the aforementioned team or to your writing friends or whatever and saying, I can't, I've gone nose blind on this. I can't smell this book anymore. I need your feedback. I need to know what to do. And then with those, you know, you have more rounds of stuff. And then I, I think you can learn stuff right up until the end of rewriting. And, and, and you will, you know, you do reach phases of exhaustion and part of the nice thing about having a contract for a book is it forces you to work through bits that I would have given up on because I feel tired I you know I I struggle with a lot of this and I I suspect that I attribute now a lot of them the difficulties I have with writing to say autism which you know I did yeah I had my diagnosis a year ago and now I fart on about it all the time and I see everything through that lens and I I I realize actually when a lot of what I talk about with my writing is is what you experience you know listeners writing all the time as i've been through exactly the same thing and then not all autistic right so it's and then not all suffering from anxiety or you know they haven't all suffered from depression so i think most of these things are just human things okay um but it depends what you want out of the book uh i think there's always it's nice to have multiple projects on the go at once so you never really stop or begin but i guys i get the one of the hardest things is letting go of a book but having these state i'm I'm very lucky in that i have these stages of people and filters that the book goes through but even then i'm like God, you get to that point where you're like you've been thinking god when this book's finished when this book's finally finished and then you start to approach the point where you're going oh no when i if i send this back this is what is going to go in ink on the page flip okay and then you start like backing away and trying to stop and um yeah but i mean i know i've got to stop working on the book because it's because it's been printed (laughs) but even then you know my you know coward is coming out in paperback and they sent the previous version for me and they're like are there any changes you want to make for the paperback version are there any mistakes that you want to correct or whatever so you know goodness knows when uh, uh jess v walker says how do i build my word count without boring the reader also any tips for writing in first person present point of view thanks how do you build my word count without boring the reader just i mean it's, why i i would start by not focusing on building your word count which isn't a intrinsic good I mean, I will return you back to to give sort of a slightly less flippant answer. So something practical, because I sense here that you are 
maybe suggesting that you write you've written some scenes that feel a bit lean that go past a little bit quickly you tend to be sort of burnt the story is over a length where you know it doesn't feel commercially viable you wish you'd spent longer and so what can you do well i think showing not telling makes a difference because uh you have to then go you go down into detail and engage the reader's five senses what can the your point of view character see and sense and smell taste give us that experiential in the moment sense of what is happening in the dramatic present um I think it's important to, and, and this links with my favourite phrase, you know, it's coming crunchy specificity. I think it's really important to uh, you know, dig into talking in specifics and, and to, to a certain extent that involves research as well to make sure, you know, it just, it matters to me, you know, in the honours, for example, which is set in 1935, it, it matters that I know, uh, I mean, the you know, the the house has electricity but it's electricity run from a generator because you you know you, you, the the national grid is happening around that time but that it, so then i'm like what does a plug flex look like in 1935 that would be in this house what does a plug flex look like so i can describe one potentially now i don't think you'd think to you wouldn't criticize an author for not knowing who wrote a novel set in 1935 who didn't know what a plug flex looked like you wouldn't go like why does this person know but it matters to me this visceral engagement with the real with the reality of a world and that's just a stylistic choice for me but it does mean that things tend to move slower because i want to know what our character is experiencing and dialogue takes a while to yeah i wouldn't it's not but it's not a but those things have to matter to characters as well like i wouldn't just describe a plug flex it it, you know it matters because it's being used by a character to you know trip someone up or strangle them or whatever you know that's why it matters in that moment i'm not just luxuriating and describing everything in the room for no reason because that's just pointless and i have to say i have read novels set in historical periods that i think are shite because they clearly the author felt that no detail I'm thinking, look, look, I'm not going to, let's not be around the books. I'm talking about Atonement. I thought Atonement was wank. And I think one of the reasons it was really bad was it was, there. aside from the fact that uh, a, a nurse memoirist claimed that he had, that he had lifted, that Ian McEwan had lifted large sections of her memoir and given them a kind of fictional makeover and put it into his book as his own work. Aside from that, I I just feel like there was a sense that there was no piece of research that McEwen had done that was, he deemed, too irrelevant 
to include. And it's just a lot of it's very bloody boring and irrelevant and dull. And it's just that thing of having a character talk about Margaret Thatcher and pound notes because they're in the 80s. It's like watching... Uh, it, it's like watching Quantum Leap and the characters, Sam Beckett's in a kitchen, a family kitchen in the 60s and they're watching the news and the dad is like mentioning the president's name and talking about the big news of the day in a very on the nose way it's like when you watch the adaptations of Poirot and the character says you mark my words Herr Hedler will never invade the Sudetenland and you're like no one speaks like that at the time and also we're then supposed to think that character's a twat because we're like haha we know he did you big divvy and you know I just think it's important not to just ladle on luscious description for the sake of it Maybe you don't have enough incident and plot. Maybe you write short stories and you need to engage with that. But also, just remember that you're allowed to read novels and see how they do it. (laughs) If you've got books in your house, take one down from the shelf, open it, and look how it does a scene. And, And that's not me being rude. That's like literally how I dealt with, in the honours, the approach, Delphine approaching... Uh, the Baron Hall. I was like, how shall I describe this? And I was trying to write it and find it really difficult. And I was just like, you know what? Why don't I just read some books where it describes the approach to a country house? And I got and I, 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 and I got a copy of Hound of the Baskervilles. And I was like, right, how does it describe the approach to Baskerville Hall? And I read it and I saw how it handled it and then I copied that (laughs) you're allowed to do that so I would say like don't forget books exist and you're allowed to look with that your specific question in mind and that should give you some answers as well but you need to make sure there's a story there because you will naturally just skip over stuff if there's a sense of a lack of incident so those are my thoughts but but mainly it's show don't tell that naturally puffs out the, uh, that's like lip filler for prose. Chandler says, how do you figure out what's next in a story when you've run out of the stuff that ignited the story in the first place? Similarly, how can you approach a scene where every angle you've tried and every single angle you imagine trying generates your brain's error redo from start reflex? Well, you may be suffering great questions and I think it links a little bit to the, uh, to the first question we had from Topper about that feeling of should you go back and redo something or you know so are you suffering from a little bit of analysis paralysis possibly and you may just need to push through is the story is there enough of a story to keep going i don't know like i can't answer that for you in in generalities how do you figure out what's next in a story when you run out of the stuff that ignited the story in the first place well there there may be no what's next that may be the story maybe there wasn't enough of an idea to sustain a novel it depends you don't clearly not every stories have natural ending points and you can't just (laughs) 
it's not a soap opera. You can't just endlessly kind of keep whacking the flywheel and making it spin round. You need to have some deep thing driving it. Now, of course, a classic structure for quest narratives is uh, protagonist uh, is hit with a small problem, tries to solve that small problem. You know, they, uh, I don't know, maybe they need some food and so they go and steal something. And then in stealing this item, they um, accidentally, you know, they, they uncover the a, conspir- a larger conspiracy, maybe. They break into uh, the the uh, the laboratory of a shady character in the uh, darker part part of town who has enlisted the help of a sorcerer and in stealing something from this place uh, a gem that's being used in a, in a, in a spell they discover that the person has been resurrecting the dead to use as slave labour in a mine from whence this gem came. And now the character is embroiled in a larger... They have to make a decision, Do I, am I going to solve this larger scandal? And maybe they don't want to at first, but having stolen something from this person, they are now on the run from them and defeating that person's larger plans dovetails with their own self-interest so you can have an initial inciting incident that connects with a bigger thing right that connect the the classic one for me it's not that i was gonna say the classic one as if it's part of the literature canon but my favorite is in the video game chrono trigger spoilers if you've never played it just for the inciting incident i should say not for the whole game but is the characters accidentally going back in time that's the inciting incident is being sucked into a time portal one of the characters being mistaken from her for her ancestor uh who is also a princess this is mal the character princess mal her ancestor looks exactly like her and she's mistaken for her ancestor they think she's the princess at the palace and her ancestor has gone missing But because they think she's the princess, they decide they call off the search for her ancestor, which means that her ancestor will now never be found because her ancestor has been kidnapped. So then Princess Marl will not exist if this is not sorted out, right? So this is a real crisis. So they go out and they find her and bring her back. Anyway, the the characters in then escaping this accidentally go through a second time void into the future. And in the future they discover that the entire world is a wasteland that has been destroyed by the emergence of a a terrifying elder god called Lavos from the centre of the earth. It it bursts out of of, of the planet on something that has been called retrospectively the Day of Lavos and destroys the planet and most of the life on the planet. And there are a few survivors, but pretty much the, the, it's a wasteland now, the planet. And then you're kind of like, you can't really go. It's, your problem is now no longer, we've got to get back home. 
because they can't the heroes can't return to their normal life because they know that all of humanity is heading towards this apocalypse that they now have accidentally gained knowledge of so that's how it expands out from the initial story which is a story of we fell into a time portal how do we get home to we need to save our friend because <laughs> she's been mistaken for the for the queen and um she's gonna no, no longer exist if we don't help her to oh my gosh like this the fact that we've fallen into these time portals now and actually the emergence of this thing is, is now gonna give some suggestion why there should be just time portals that can open <laughs> here and there these kind of these holes in time are connected to this thing and its emergence and that's what the larger story is that's the beginning of the second act i guess in that structure so that's i i, I feel like that touches on your question it's like what's the bigger story here and how do you open out now it might be that you just feel like there isn't one it's run out of steam because it wasn't as big a story as I, as, as I hoped. But that's that's the kind of thing I'd be thinking of structurally. Uh, Le Grand Mushroom says, dialogue tags. You're pretty black and white on this, but I find in my own writing, I want it to be super clear who is speaking. I dislike dialogue in books, which is line after line, especially with no speech marks, and I'm rubbish at identifying who is saying what. So I can end up with a lot of he, she, they said. I get how some are ridiculous, of course, but is there a happy medium? Also, what do you think of adding realistic vocal tips, ticks, pauses, ums and ers? Well, for the second thing, don't do it. It's just it just never works unless you're really, really good at it. And I think even then you end up reading like a kind of like 70s experimental playwright. And, and those things are just rarely that great in retrospect. I think there's normally a little bit of stylistic license in our dialogue where we're thinking about the purpose of it. However, um, in terms of like, I feel like you're cutting off a little bit of wiggle room because you're saying you don't... You've posited two extremes and this may be the fallacy of the excluded middle. You you say you don't want... You find it difficult to follow line after line with no attribution. So then you just have he said, she said. Well, you know, you can have he said, she said, or they said, or a name um, every couple of lines, every few lines without endless blocks of text so that's one that's one opportunity uh two i think different people they don't have to have like ticks or phonetic spellings for them to have certain stylistic uh tendencies that might and contextual clues that say who's talking but also like di like dialogue beats is the answer really to me at least i like having just the person's name and an, a paired action. Wait a minute, before you go, Mark put down his gloves and turns towards her. I wanted to ask you about something. Oh? She stopped and looked at him. You know, something like that. Like, I feel like it's just really clear who's talking when you put them, the pronoun or the name, on the same line, especially if it's only two people. You just have a paired. You just have just have a just have a beat. Now, now that can become a crutch, just like anything else. It can become a little bit of a, a stylistic tick if you do it too reflexively. So, 
Also, have you just like again? I <laughs> I know I've I've solicited questions, and I don't want to sound like I'm being tetchy. I'm not, but um, do you have an author whose dialogue you really like? Because you're allowed to like pick up their book and look at it and see what they do. It's just, that's another thought. That's not me. I'm sorry. I, I I was just conscious that might sound like I was being like, um, do I have to do everything around here? I don't mean it like that. I don't mean it like that. But what I'm saying is, if you read a book where you just and you pr- probably the answer is like if, if an author's dialogue is good you didn't go cool this dialogue's good you you just enjoyed the book and didn't notice the dialogue right and certainly you didn't go these dialogue tags are good you you just didn't notice them you were just immersed in the story but it might be worth going back to some of your favorite authors who you really like and just looking and seeing how they handle it and and then nicking that because you're allowed to nick stuff no one will notice and you'll do a bad job of nicking it and you'll mistranslate it. You'll do a bad impression of them, and that mistranslation will functionally be originality. No one will know that you're copying your favourite author. Instead, your flaws as a forger will generate purely by accident originality, and it will become your own. Is what I think. So that's how I'd approach it. Uh, well, I say that's how I would approach it, but that's, I don't need to put a conditional clause on it. That's how I do approach it. I wonder if I've got some dialogue. I mean, like, here, it, okay, so I'll just read, I just, oh, I've just got a copy of the honours on my desk, so I'll just read you some dialogue from it. Mr. Kung made a strangling noise. Daddy gripped his shoulders with pale, tendon-mapped hands. So this is a scene where Mr. Kung, I, I believe, is, um, is, is, is uh, drowning, uh, has been pulled from the sea. Uh, sort of semi-drowning and is on the beach and Delphine's father is there with her. Um, Mr Kung made a strangling noise. Daddy gripped his shoulders with pale, tendon-mapped hands. He looked at Delphine. I can't save him, he said. He gazed around at the empty beach. Something brought him smartly to attention. You have to go to the house and get help. But it's over a mile away. I can't save him. But what do I say? Daddy pounded a fist against the sand. Get Dr Lansley. Bring him here now. So, um, you know, there was, I, I don't, there's one he said in five pieces of dialogue, three without attribution, um, and a couple of beats. I, I, you know, I, I feel like that was, it's fairly clear on the page who's speaking there. I'm happy with that. <laughs> you, you can take a different approach, of course. Um, and you can experiment with like wildly different ones. You you can deliver dialogue. I mean, but you don't have to. You don't have to take away speech marks as well. I feel like you you know you there's. I, I realize that sometimes you can read trendy books with their hyphens, and um, you don't have to do that. And if you use speech marks, I think you'll be fine. Right. I'm going to stop there. I hope that's all been helpful to you. Uh, it's certainly a revelation to me to find out what I think. Uh, like I say, you know, they, these are just my informed, sincere, uh, but subjective thoughts. So take them in that context and um, meant to be helpful. And anything that just feels false to you, feel free to put to one side and ignore. Um, if you have enjoyed the podcast this year, 
and you like to support me the best way you can do that is to go to my coffee page there's a link in the description of today's episode and uh, just consider if you've enjoyed the podcast this year and any of the episodes i've put out and you'd like to say thank you and help me continue making the show i'd really appreciate uh you considering dropping me a, a few beans uh, you just can click on it and it gives you a little link and you can uh, drop me a few spondules um that'll be lovely i don't have occasionally someone like i think i've got about like three episodes that have an advert in them uh, the rest are just sponsored by listeners and um yeah it, the, the show's never going to be behind a paywall or i'm n- never going to have special i i can't imagine i'll ever be in a position where I, I want to do special uh subscriber only episodes uh because i like making the show as a rule free at the point of uh at the at the point of use because a, a huge amount of writing resources are behind paywalls and i think a lot of wealthier people in the industry don't realize how much of that is true so i i feel like as a point of principle i never want to put stuff behind paywalls um so people you know sending donations and chucking something into the hat every now and then um really makes a difference uh, and i appreciate it and i'm very grateful because i know you don't get anything out of it except my sincere gratitude um aside from that i'm not going to say anymore i think except um do join the discord if you'd like to join us and thank you for your questions i've really enjoyed making the podcast this year i i i, I love doing it like i it's been a not easy year for me and i'm sure you've had your ups and downs as well but i love talking to you i, I love making the show and i want to continue doing it for as long as i can and i'm looking forward to next year so please take care have a great rest of 2022 if it's 2022 when you listen to this or if it's in the future then hi how are you i hope you're well um but most of all please i wish you a wonderful week of writing